Hi there, this is On Mike with Jordan Rich. I would be he, Jordan Rich, and I welcome you. Conversation with interesting, creative people who entertain us, educate us, and inspire. The definition of ephemera, any transitory written or printed matters not meant to be retained or preserved. Collectible ephemera include advertising, trading cards, bookmarks, greeting cards, pamphlets, posters, tickets, you name it. Well, I, for one, am thrilled that there is a preserver of great ephemera, and he's done so in two incredibly entertaining books called Buy Me Boston Volumes 1 and 2, a project proudly taken on by Brian Coleman, and the website is buymeboston.com. Now, even though our talk today will be rather Boston-centric, there is ephemera in every corner of the globe. So wherever you are, just think about all that you've seen and maybe forgotten about. It's a terrifically fun trip down memory lane. We're talking about two self-published volumes by Brian, who has painstakingly collected and cataloged, in no particular order, hundreds of ads for rock clubs and comedians, hair salons, massage parlors, some of the ads from reputable media giants, others eh, from rags. But it's all great fun. So settle back and enjoy my chat with Brian Coleman as we go on mic. Talk about a guy I should have met 20 years ago. We've crossed paths, I think, in the industry, but I love his work. I'm holding two of these books in my hand. They're actual books, Brian. That's some, something kind of cool. Oh, go figure. With but pages. You hear that? <laughs> I'm pretty old school, and there's there's others like me and us who, who actually appreciate the, the printed word. Well, when I flipped through it and saw a lot of radio stations, some I've worked for, I saw a lot of movie theaters. I was less inclined to, to head to the music stuff because uh, I'm a little bit younger and I wasn't into that music scene, but it's fascinating. So let's talk about the origin of book one, uh, the idea for it and, and the evolution of it. So uh, the first one came about in, I probably started on it in early 2018. Um, I was working with uh, Kay Bourne, who, uh, who just passed away, who was an amazing person. Uh, she was organizing her archives to donate them to Emerson. And I basically just volunteered to help her out because I was really fascinated in her work. Uh, she worked at the Bay State Banner for something like 45 years, absolutely incredible career. Um, and then at the same time, I was uh, getting to know David Bieber, who you are familiar with. Mm -hmm. And he has a just a massive archive. I, I uh, call it Mount Bieber uh, it's out in, in Norwood. And it's, I mean, it's basically an aircraft hangar of all this cultural stuff, social history, magazines, albums, tapes, et cetera. So, so these, these both kind of converged. And I, I started to realize that Kay or David were probably never going to kind of harness them in the way that I might, because I had put out books in the past uh, never anything like this. My books were very text heavy. And I just kind of, it occurred to me like this would be really interesting. Um, and keeping in mind too, that the dirty old Boston site was up and I followed that and thought it was great. That was all, that's pretty much exclusively fo photograph based, mm -hmm. photography based. And so this is a, in a way kind of a compliment to that. It, it mm -hmm. explores the 1960s through the 1980s. And I think the thing that you'll notice about it or anyone notices about it when they pick it up is there's no um, order to it. It's on purpose. It's not chronological. It's not 
by topic. Uh, it's so it's kind of this. I call it a, a, a daydream about Boston during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and that you never know what's coming next, but hopefully you'll at least appreciate it. Would it be presumptuous of me to suggest that even though this is Boston-centric and Boston's got its own personality, that many, many cities around the country, maybe even around the world, have similar kinds of catalogs out there, not books like yours, but similar kinds of archival material? Because this is really not just a uh, fun for the locals, but it's fun for anybody to explore what we were doing in print in, say, the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with that. I mean, there there have been different books about advertising in the 60s and 70s that are kind of more general overviews. But yeah, I mean, I, uh, the hope is, and, and I tend to focus a lot of uh, the effort that I do getting the word out to just kind of Boston and New England but there are people who certainly there's expat, expats all over the place. I sell them in L.A. and Chicago and New York. And so it does certainly capture that era from a visual standpoint. I mean, uh, kind of my sweet spot, one of the, the my favorite eras is like the late 60s, right? When like locally Boston After Dark um, was happening and uh, the ads, they just took such care mm-hmm. with these ads and the ads themselves were not, they were trying to get a point across. They were like, we're open now, or there's a sale, but they were works of art on their own. So I definitely wanted to explore that as well. And I think that is of interest beyond just Boston. I promised the audience that I will hold up to camera three. Some of these can check them out, but the book is called Buy Me Boston is a two volume set now. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting before we get to specific ads is the fact that a lot of them are handwritten. WCAS Radio in Cambridge, I remember it well, the folk station, a hand-scribbled ad. There was no desktop publishing, perhaps, at the ready. Uh, Talk a little bit about the style that you found. Yeah, I mean, I think that I definitely almost, the the one thing I did almost on purpose, and uh, not exclusively, but I would say 95%, is these are ads that are not from, the Boston Globe or the, uh, the Boston Herald. Um, and that is not because I hate the Boston Globe or the Boston Herald, but because there was a barrier of entry and my kind of soft spot is more for mom and pop stores or events or clubs or restaurants. So uh, some of those th- that does boil down to a handwritten ad here and there, there's handwritten ads for places like Roscoe's and Roxbury in the early eighties. And, and I certainly love those. Those are my favorites, but some, some of the stuff from the sixties and seventies with some of the typesetting that was going on is, is almost equally as good. But, but I think the key is that there's just such a range, like you could never, I think overall, the interesting thing to me is that uh, my whole life I've been, whenever I thumb through a magazine or a newspaper, I've been as drawn to the advertisements as I have to the articles. Some people kind of gloss them over and some people are just like, this is a nuisance, get it out of the way kind of thing. Just let me get to the article. But I've always been interested in advertising and how people approach things. And the the range of stuff in Buy Me Boston in both volumes is some of them are kind of ugly to the point that it's funny because they just (laughs) wanted to get the information across. And some of them are beautiful and complex to the point where it almost gets in the way of the information you're trying to uh, convey. And, And that's kind of what I love is that every, 
basically advertisements, as you know, and as people out there know, that's the most um, direct way that uh, any enterprise, any entrepreneurial enterprise can get their point across. If you have an article, then that's going to be, uh, there's going to be a gatekeeper in between, which is the writer and the editors. And they'll say how, they'll frame the story how they want to. But if you're taking out an ad, that is, assumingly that is your direct voice from the person who owns the business. And that's kind of the beauty of it too, because sometimes that can be a little clunky. And, and I actually, I like it when it's clunky like that. Well, what's interesting too, is taken out of contextual time. I mean, you look at some of the ads there, as that would be verboten today. Here's an example, and we should start mentioning some of these. One in 1975 from Nighttime Magazine called Swedish Sauna. Beautiful young ladies will pamper you breathless at Swedish Sauna. There's a picture of a guy, maybe the owner, uh, with three look like Dean Martin, our man Flint type females, <laughs> fembots, or around him. It is so suggestive and so campy. It's really true. You can take a look at the ads and discern where we were as a society, as a culture back then. I mean, sure. If you look at the like the Boston Phoenix in the 80s and 90s, there were some pretty not only racy uh, ads, but they weren't really trying to hide what they were all about either with the escort services and all that. And the Phoenix made a lot of money on those ads. You know, that was a big part of their whole business model. Uh, was a lot of their, their classifieds. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting though, because it, it, online you can find all kinds of stuff that's certainly a lot worse than that Swedish sauna ad um, yeah. if you look hard enough. So, so it's really just, uh, it, they, that ad particularly is, is about as 70s as you get. I will certainly <laughs> agree with you there. I'm looking through, as, as I say, I'm on volume one now. We'll talk with volume two, how that uh, is, is also important to the discussion today. But Here's one from 1965, April, and I remember these, the Demolition Derby, 100-plus demo derby at the Norwood Arena on Route 1. Wow, adults, two bucks, kids, 30 cents or something. Uh, the, the, what, a, what a throwback to uh, 60s nostalgia that one is. Definitely. I mean, all this stuff. I mean, the hope is that um, the way I put them together is kind of with the hope that half of the people who look at it at any given point will be like, oh my gosh, I remember that I was there or mm. I totally went there when I was a kid or I wish I had gone and they closed. And then hopefully the other part of it are, I'd like to know more about that. Like, that's pretty crazy. I should ask my uncle, does he remember this? And uh, so, so, and hopefully there's a mix that uh, once you get through it, there is this combo of recognition and personal reminiscing but also a curiosity to kind of know more. And I guess that could lead us into why volume two uh, came about and, and volume three will also come about because I have so much stuff just ready and it's hard to select. I have so much good stuff that it's, it's actually the, the real battle at this point is culling it down. So it's not a 500 page book. Observations from me reading through these and loving them. These are the kind of things you don't just read once, you keep them around. Observations include the fact that there was a lot of targeted ethnic and minority advertising, particularly to the African-American community. I mean, hair salons, fashion, nightclubs, uh, something you don't see as much today, obviously. Um, and, and Boston during that 70s period was sort of in racial turmoil. So it's just interesting how that transpired, I think, at that time. 
Well, I think that that the, there's always that's there's always going to be kind of targeting no matter what. The, one of the interests, so that is correct. I mean, the Bay State banner is very, is still very targeted towards Boston's African American community. Um, but there's also, for example, uh, there was a magazine. I don't know if you remember it called Nightfall back that started in 1975, and I've taken a bunch of ads from there. That they have uh, David Bieber has a great stack of those, and I have some of my own in my own collection. Um, that was almost exclusively like a disco magazine, you know. So that was also very targeted. There would be places that would never normally uh, advertise the fact that they had a disco night on Wednesdays, but then they would do a full page ad in, in nightfall, like a, a hotel lounge, like a holiday inn somewhere on the outskirts or in Cambridge or something like that. So yeah, I mean, part of it is this kind of targeted advertising. And I try very hard and very consciously to present a wide range. Um, there's an amazing archive, an LGBTQ archive called the History Project um, that they've been very generous letting me uh, kind of go through their archives as well. And so I try and include a lot of that too. I, I mean, really it's, I'm trying to present Boston not through even my own lens, but a, a, an aerial view of as much of the range of what was going on in Boston as possible. And even in the music side, not just Aerosmith and Jay Giles, but Prince Charles and the City Beat Band and uh, some of the reggae groups and world music groups that were going on and certainly punk stuff as well. That, that's my own personal sweet spot. Well, what's interesting is um, I just opened up to a page at random in volume two. And on one side, you've got a bunch of clubs, Sammy White's. Uh, you've got Lenny's on the Turnpike featuring James Cotton's blues band and Stan Kenton. On the opposite page, Brian, you've got a very artistic and well-placed ad for Louis the Fine Men's Store in Boston featuring the Sad Sack Clown, which looks like, and it was, I'm sure, something that a major agency, because they were a big client for many years, I'm sure. It's quite a range. Yeah, I mean, I try and cast as wide of a net as possible. I mean, the beauty of all of this, in my opinion, is that, uh, and why it's fun, is that you could give me and then you and then five other people the exact same stack of magazines and newspapers, and our books would look totally different because we would be choosing with different uh different eyes, you know, what, 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 what we're drawn to, different kind of agendas as to what we want to. I mean, my whole thing is almost always, I, I, I root for the underdog. I root for the small mom and pops. I mean, the, my favorites, if I had one favorite kind of place for advertisements, it is uh, award show banquet programs <laughs> because, and, and they can range from, I've seen ones in Kay Bourne's collection for, uh, like a black firefighters banquet in that happened in Randolph or Stoughton in the early eighties. And then there's other kind of weird modeling talent show things. And, and because the, the reason is the barrier for entry on those is ridiculously low. So if somewhere that might never ad, ad, advertise even in the Bay state banner or the Boston Phoenix, because it was too expensive for them, relatively speaking, would definitely take out an ad. And, and they tend to be very hyper-local to wherever that's happening. So uh, 
there were like the Celebrity Awards was an African-American entertainment uh, and cultural awards show in the early 80s. And so there was all these ads for um, gr entities, groups, stores, et cetera, that I've never seen ads for anywhere else. So those to me are almost just absolute gold and, and they're hard to find. But whenever I get one, I, I try and hang on to it as long as I can. We may have seen the end of movie theaters, public event space as we know it with the pandemic that we're all accustomed to, sadly. But one of the great joys of my life has always been to look at the movie ad page, which you don't see very much at all anymore. And in the books, you've got several examples, but I just wanted to point out, there's one from the Boston Record American, no longer in existence, yeah. from 1971. And I got to tell you, man, I was just thrilled to read the listings of films and how great the listings are. You had some James Bond retreads coming out, Thunderball. You also had The Owl and the Pussycat uh, with Woody Allen. Here's Bullet with Steve McQueen. I mean, what a year, 71. And some of these films came out in the 60s, but there was so much going on at the movies. Little Big Man, I Love My Wife. And of course, a classic, The Stewardesses in 3D. <laughs> Which, is that the one where they're all just completely jammed on the page? That's the one where they're all jammed on the page. Absolutely. Cause, cause the beauty of that one, too, like, obviously, there's the throwback to just what movies were playing and what movie theaters were there and what what's gone. But my also my my thing and I talked to my my designer, uh, Karen Hirsch, about this, too, was can you imagine having to lay out that page? Because there was not you were not working with Photoshop and PageMaker back then. You were hand laying all of that stuff out and. I just can't imagine that would drive me absolutely insane. So there's that part of that, that aspect as well. It visually just, it's literally like a puzzle and you have to put it together and like, how do I fit all this stuff on this page? Cause I can't do this on three pages cause I've only allowed one. Yeah. It's very, very interesting on in the same book, not too far away. There is a particular ad that I stopped at, which is a Boston magazine ad, not for Boston magazine, but in the magazine. It's a nonprofit public service ad. And I forget what it is, but it involves children, very high quality photography, very upscale. So again, I keep saying this, there are the, the simple handwritten ads to the ones that probably cost even then thousands of dollars. Yeah. Well, that's the beauty of it because that was the landscape. I mean, I think Boston magazine is certainly an interesting one too, because there, there's a couple ads I've used in, in both volumes that are kind of, they would do advertorials and they would do uh, for like, basically like restaurants. So there was a one for actually just yesterday, somebody, this is actually kind of a funny story. This person, and, and I love that I've put these books out. Now I get these very random requests from people. This guy said, a friend of mine's uncle or someone in his family owned the medieval manor and yeah. do you have any old ads from the medieval manor because they had this jester in the ads and he wants to get a tattoo of it <laughs> <laughs> and i was like i actually do uh, although it's interesting i didn't have and it's in the book i think it's in volume two i do you have a medieval manor ad in there, but it's not the drawn jester. It's actually a photo of a guy dressed as a jester. And he's like, oh, this isn't exactly what he was thinking about, but this is awesome. And, and, that, and that happens to me from time to time, like someone from, who was related to the people who had like the In Square Men's Bar in Inman Square hit me up a while ago and was like, hey, do you have any ads? And I, Because keep in mind that for any ad that's in the book, 
I might have five or six or 10 others. You know, I have so many WBCN ads and KISS FM ads and stuff like that, that I have to decide which ones I want to put in, you know, and that's, it's a great problem to have, but um, that's the beauty of it is, is it's all kind of the tip of the iceberg in a lot of ways. It, it also points out it, when you look at the 60s and 70s, particularly even some of the 80s, the amount of nightclub activity, the, the places, the venues that were available for all kinds of audiences. I mean, today, to find a jazz club, you have to you have GPS on maximum. I mean, it's, it's really a different era uh, that is, is held together with these beautiful ads that you put in the book. Uh, comment, if you will, on how times have changed and the ads reflect that. Well, I mean, certainly now is kind of a weird time to talk about, you know, live performance stuff because we're in literally uncharted territory with the pandemic. But uh, there are certainly less clubs than there were. I mean, it's interesting. I was talking to someone the other day and they were kind of like lamenting um, that it's so hard to if you're an artist to put on shows and this and that. But I mean, I come, my personal experience is I come from like a punk rock background and very DIY and like, is there some kind of a weird VFW hall? Then yeah, rent it out and play. Like it doesn't have to be at an official club or like if you want to create and if you want to perform and this goes for any genre, really country music and jazz and, uh, and rock for sure. But you figure out a place to play and then if you can connect with an audience and then part of that too is reflected in the advertisements. So there's, I have tons and tons of jazz workshop in Paul's mall where it is probably the pinnacle, the ultimate jazz kind of rock experience in the sixties and especially the seventies, uh, the late great Fred Taylor, um, and you know, it's, it's, they, that was an established club, but it wasn't a huge club. I mean, it wasn't like you could get a thousand people in there. So those were still, so what I love is, is finding like Bob Marley's first performance there at Paul's mall in 1973 with the whalers. He wasn't even listed. Um, and then two years later, and then if you follow the trajectory, then in volume one, there was a huge concert at Harvard Stadium called the Amandala Festival uh, that where Bob Marley was headlining Harvard Stadium. So it kind of you can plot those kind of trajectories, too. I don't always get to really fully explore it in the books because that's not really the place. And that's why I have that mass cult 617 site where I can dive a little deeper and stuff like that. But, yeah, I mean it's all, it all kind of goes together. You know, there, uh, I had mentioned to you just recently about this hoodoo barbecue kind of page I did on my site that was basically the, the restaurant inside the rat, the infamous punk club in Kenmore square in the seventies and eighties and, uh, up through the nineties. And, uh, it was beyond food there. It was James Ryan, the guy who ran the club he would frequently leave the kitchen, go downstairs and sing like a Muddy Waters song with the band if the Del Fuegos were playing for their encore and go back up and keep cooking. I mean, it was that kind of a fun community, like, you know, no holds barred kind of situation. And, and that's the beauty of it. I mean, look at the Middle East. Middle East the same way is kind of a, a family type of atmosphere. Um, Joseph and Nabil weren't going to go and 
perform with any artist, but, um, you know, it was the same kind of a family type of thing. And that's, that's where neighborhood anchors are created. The neighborhoods grow up around places like the Middle East. I mean, I remember Central Square in the late 80s and early 90s, and it was a pretty ragtag place. And if you didn't have night stage in the Middle East for people to walk from the Central Square T-stop down, probably a lot of people would never have, have walked that direction and realized, oh, there's a bunch of cool restaurants over here. And that's how these things work. They're they're all part of the scene and part of a, a neighborhood and a, and a culture. Absolutely trip down memory lane. That's so much fun and a little nostalgic and a little sad when you realize so many of these places are gone and, and clubs are disappeared, but their memory lingers. Here's one that's uh, so funny to me. I shouldn't say it's funny, but it is. On page 78 in volume two, the Massachusetts Turnpike to and from the Red Sox games, the fastest and safest way in back in 1969. And, you know, we take the if you live in the Massachusetts, New England area, you take it for granted. But that was a big deal back then. Not too far after after Ike's uh, highway system came into a bit. But it's, it's really fun. And the other one I wanted to mention real quick, because I just talked to this guy the other day. He's a, he's a friend I keep in touch with him and we do updates and promos for his work is Tom Rush. There's a 1965 Tom Rush ad. I just spoke to him the other day and he's still at it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, part of the book too, I hope is that you re you certainly miss places that are gone because I think most of them are gone, but you can certainly celebrate the places that are still here. And yes. that's really the beauty of it. If you look at like, for instance, Newbury comics, Newbury Comics has gone through so many different changes since they started in the early, early 80s. And now people sometimes will say, oh, they don't even sell that much music. They sell like weird tchotchkes and T-shirts. And it's and my response to that is, well, they're still around and Tower Records is not. So what does that say? Like they've figured out a way and it might not be the same. Um, interestingly, I live in Revere and right down the street from me, I don't know if you're even aware of this. I wasn't until very recently is that the Western front, which was the, a really, really important black owned club in uh, outside of central square. Uh, Marvin Gilmore was the owner. They, he sold the building 10, 15 years ago, probably it's now condos. He just opened a marijuana dispensary in Chelsea and it's called the Western front. And it's like, wow, that's, that's incredible. So yeah, sometimes places morph. I don't know, maybe Newbury Comics will be become a dispensary and, you know, in one corner of the store another five years as things open up even more. So, so part of it is definitely lamenting the loss of a lot of great places. Um, but hopefully legal seafood, there's a like, super early ads for legal seafoods in there and um, they're still around. Although I know that there was just a recently a sale and that kind of thing. So, so really that's, it is going to, we'll see what, once the smoke clears from this horrible pandemic and what that's going to have done to so many different businesses, restaurants, stores, et cetera. But, um, but yeah, it, it's, I personally like to think on the positive side and certainly give pats on the back to any place that's still around. If you're in this book and you're still around today, then you deserve double extra credit. There's one more thing that uh, I want to bring up to you. And that is, as a fan of Look and Life magazines from the 30s, 
I love to look at the ads. Most of us do. Uh, and the ads tell you a lot, but they particularly focus most ads on some kind of value or price. And I know that there are countless examples in your two wonderful compendiums. But when you look back at what a dinner cost, here's 1961, way back, right? Yeah. At the Bradford Hotel rooftop dinner, you get to see Dagmar, who starred in Al Cap's musical Little Abner, Dagmar from uh, uh, Broadway, and a complete comedy show. Dinners start at five ninety-five. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Yeah, I mean, it was interesting too when the Who played at Fenway Park. What was it two years ago? And the ticket prices were almost unimaginable. How much you would pay to see the Who? And there's an ad in Volume One of them playing at what's now basically a Gannis Arena at what used to be the Armory there mm -hmm. for, I don't know, I don't even remember, something like $3 or something like that to see the Who in 1970 or 71, whenever it was. Um, yeah, so, you know, inflation is inflation is inflation. And with the Who or the Rolling Stones, I guess part of it is you're paying just because you can't believe they're still alive and you certainly appreciate it. And it's you, you, you want to go back to that time you saw them in 1973. Let me give you one more that I love. I, I could spend all day with you. And all that. I love it. Uh, this is in volume one. And you know why I love these? Because of being a Bostonian and a real native guy, uh, I know a lot of these people are new them. There's, <laughs> it's an ad for Jack's Joke Shop. Yeah. And it's called Nose Jobs Cheap. But wait, there's more, over a billion more bone chilling. It's basically a side view of a mask with a big nose. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I knew uh, the owner, Hecky Benjamin, who was a great friend, and he's long gone. But what a terrific memory that is. To That's a perfect example. I mean, the, the nostalgia that people have on a place like Jack's Joke Shop. And on the other end of the less wholesome scale, I mean, there's an ad for the naked eye. And that will bring certain people a certain kind of nostalgia as well. A lot of these combat zone places that were pretty shady back then. But, you know, if you, you're in your 20s and you, you were going to, to the naked eye, then maybe that'll bring you back, too. So I don't I tend not to try and discriminate and and get too high and mighty because it, it all makes up what Boston is. And, and that's really what these books are all about. The other thing, too. The one thing I'll kind of, you know, close with is that they're not in any order. So it is meant to be this stream of consciousness, but I very purposely put indexes in both so that if you do kind of go back to it and you're talking to a friend or you're talking to Tom Rush and you're like, oh my God, how am I supposed to know where this stupid ad was? Then bam, go right to the index. Oh, here it is. And, um, you know, so, so, so at least, for those kind of more academic minded nerd types that there is an index. And if you remember, you're like, did I, is this the book that I saw this stupid ad in? I'm going, am I going crazy? Then you can say, Oh, yep. There's that WSSH ad. Right well, you must've learned a lot from Bieber. Cause man, he's got a museum full of stuff and probably knows where everything is. Yeah. I mean, David is one of my favorite people on the planet. Um, and because a lot of the people that I, the thing too, is just to be clear, is that these books, I am, uh, it's like I get by with a lot of help from my friends. I, I don't own a lot of this stuff myself. So what I do is I borrow, scan, and return. And um, so people like David Bieber and Kay Bourne, the late great, who just passed away, as I mentioned, um, it's, it was an amazing pleasure and honor for me to 
have that if I have a question about a place, a venue or a person or an artist that I can pick up the phone and I can just ask someone who's actually there. I just talked to someone last week who I've been getting to know this guy, DJ Eddie B in Charlestown. And he told me that he was at the James Brown show in April, 1968, the famous James Brown show that they broadcast on WGBH and famously hardly anyone was there because they were trying to get people to stay inside, but he was there. So now Mm -hmm. if I ever have a question about that show, call up Eddie B and ask him. That's, that's kind of the beauty of all this is people have been very generous with me, with their knowledge and their materials. And my, my goal is just to kind of present it in a way that gives them credit and is respectful. And, you know, it's, it's a celebration of our, our crazy little town here. Best idea for folks, if they really want to dig into more of this, and I know they do, is to visit buymeboston.com, B-U-Y, buymeboston.com. It's got details on the books, how to order them. Of course, they're available through Amazon, but do check out Brian's uh, full page there. There's a lot of really cool stuff. And um, you've got a third one in the works. Is that what I hear? Yeah, I mean, I actually have multiple books kind of swirling around right now. Um, But yeah, I will definitely do a volume three just because uh, I had, basically I'm constantly, constantly gathering stuff. I have probably, I have a folder on my computer that probably has about 4,000 pages of scans that I haven't even used yet. So I have this very true embarrassment of riches. And as long as people enjoy them and, and support them, which they have, uh, I'll, I'll keep making them because they're fun for me. And honestly, the hardest work in, in a lot of ways has already been done with the scanning and the gathering. So now it's just kind of putting everything together and shaking it up like rolling the dice and seeing what, what ad is on page 78 and which one we'll put on 79 and just keep going. The digital age preserves memories, which is why it's so cool. Brian, thank you so much. Uh, I'm glad you reached out to me. I'm glad we're now connected in pals. And this is terrific stuff for any of our listeners, no matter where they may live. So do check out buymeboston.com and you'll get, uh, you'll get hooked. I guarantee it. Brian, take care. Thank you so much. Truly appreciate it. Brian Coleman, bringing us treasures from the past. Remember, you can find out more at buymeboston.com, volumes one and two of the book available, buymeboston.com. Thanks as always to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to my great friend and business partner, Ken Carberry, here at Chart Productions, where we produce the podcast. And of course, to you guys for subscribing and downloading the podcast. Our numbers are ticking up every single week. We have listeners from around the world, and I thank you for that. Do check out my website, jordanrich.com, for more, including the way to order my new book, On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, with all proceeds benefiting Boston Children's Hospital. Till next time, this is Jordan, as always, saying be well so you can do good. Take care.